0: There are some cases that may never truly be solved. There are simply too many possibilities and too little information. But the curiosity of the question never lessens. In the case of Amelia Earhart, there are almost too many clues pulling your interests in too many directions. Where did she end up? What happened to her? Is the legend of her disappearance larger than her accomplishment would have been? When I was younger, I discovered that, for a time, Amelia lived in Toluca Lake, which is just outside of my hometown, Burbank. And the plane that Amelia flew during her attempt to circumnavigate the globe was built at Lockheed, the company that my great-grandfather worked for. There was this tether of Amelia to me, something, a place that I knew intimately, that was formative in my life, and that also connected to her, a part of her that would be a crucial aspect of her identity and her legacy. Her story, in some way, overlaps with a part of mine, and there's something magical about that. Not to mention, she was an incredibly brave woman who pushed boundaries, defied conventions, and resisted the status quo. We may never know the exact details of her death, but I believe that her fate was to leave a bold legacy. Welcome to uh, Two cities. Oh, I'm so excited. Welcome back to Tales of Two Cities. I'm Nikki and this is the first episode in our March Marathon of Badass Ladies. Each March our marathon features strong, powerful, and inspirational women with interesting and unique tales. Amelia Mary Earhart was born on July 24th, 1897. The daughter of Samuel Edwin Stanton Earhart and Amelia Amy Earhart, she was born in the Kansas home of her grandfather, Alfred Gideon Otis. Alfred was a former federal judge, a leading citizen in the small town of Atchison. Amelia was the second born, though her older sibling was stillborn, in August of 1896. Amelia was named for her grandmothers, Amelia Josephine Hares and Mary Wells Patton. Her younger sister, Grace, was born in 1899, Amelia and Grace were adventurous and unconventional. Their mother, Amy, did not believe in raising her girls to be nice little girls. She allowed them to wear pants and explore their neighborhood. Millie, as she was known as a child, and Pidge, a nickname for Grace, climbed trees, hunted rats, and wrestled. Amelia has been called a tomboy by many biographers. Her rabid curiosity for all things outdoors meant that she was seen as strange by others. She had an adventurous spirit and was quite the daredevil. In 1904, her uncle helped her build a ramp for a roller coaster that she was modeling after one that she had seen on a trip to St. Louis. The ramp was fastened to the family tool shed, and it was this ramp that launched Amelia's career in aviation. After slamming her wooden box roller coaster seat into many pieces, she emerged with a bruised lip, torn dress, and a feeling of elation. She told her sister, Oh, Pidge, it's just like flying. In 1907, a transfer of Amelia's father's job led the family to Des Moines, Iowa. The next year, 10-year-old Amelia saw her first aircraft at the Iowa State Fair. Her father encouraged her and Grace to take a flight, but Amelia was deterred by the rickety plane. She described it as, quote, a thing of rusty wire and wood and not at all interesting. In 1914, her father, Edwin, was forced to retire due to his alcoholism. At about the same time, Amelia's grandmother, the one that she was named for, Amelia Otis, died. She left a substantial estate to her daughter, who feared her husband's drinking would drain the funds, and the Otis house was auctioned. Amelia described this as the end of her childhood. With complications surrounding her father's employment, Amy took her daughters to Chicago in 1915. Amelia had always been a bright student and she canvassed nearby high schools in Chicago to find the best science program. She rejected the school closest to their home because the chemistry lab was just like a kitchen sink. She decided instead to enroll in Hyde Park High School, though it was miserable for Amelia. The yearbook captured this with a caption, A.E. the girl in brown who walks alone. She graduated in 1916, and throughout her childhood, she had aspired for a career. She kept a scrapbook of magazine and newspaper articles about successful women in male-dominated fields, law, advertising, mechanical engineering, for example. She began junior college at a Gaunt School in Pennsylvania, but didn't finish. It was 1917, when visiting her sister in Toronto, that Amelia was moved. She saw wounded soldiers returning from World War I and decided to be trained as a nurse's aide. She began working with a voluntary aid detachment at Spadina Military Hospital. She made food for patients with special diets and handed out medications at the dispensary. During the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, Amelia was immersed in nursing duties and fell ill herself. She suffered from pneumonia and maxillary sinusitis. She was hospitalized in November 1918 and discharged nearly two months later in December. Though, it was the sinus-related symptoms—pain, pressure, and copious mucus drainage in her nostrils and throat—that would remain throughout her life. She sometimes was forced to wear a bandage on her cheek to cover a small tube inserted to help the sinuses drain. While in the hospital, in the pre-antibiotic era, she had to have painful operations to wash out her sinuses. The procedures were not successful and headaches only worsened. She remained ill for nearly a year, spending the time with her sister in Northampton, Massachusetts. It was around this time that Amelia first became interested in flying. She visited an airfare held in Toronto. She watched a flying exhibition put on by a World War I ace. The pilot saw Amelia and her friend and dived at them. She explained, quote, I'm sure he said to himself, watch me make them scamper. But she stood her ground and said, quote, I did not understand it at the time, but I believed that the little red plane said something to me as it swished by." Motivated to complete her education, Amelia enrolled at Columbia University in 1919 to complete a course in medical studies, but quit a year later to be with her parents who had reunited and moved to California. While in Long Beach on December 28, 1920, Amelia visited an airfield with her father. She took a ride with Frank Hawks who would later become an air racer. That ride changed Amelia's course in life. The 10 minute flight, which cost her father $10, awakened a need to fly. She explained, quote, by the time I had got two or 300 feet off the ground, I knew I had to fly. She began working odd jobs to save the thousand dollars needed for flying lessons. She had her first lesson on January 3rd, 1921, in Long Beach. Her teacher was Anita Nita Snook, a pioneer female aviator, Amelia arrived and said, quote, I want to fly. Will you teach me? But it wasn't easy. Amelia had to take a bus to the end of the line and then walk another four miles to get the lessons. She wanted to fit in desperately and wanted to wear a leather jacket, but decided to sleep in it for three nights to give it a worn look, and she chopped off her hair to match other female aviators of the time. Six months later, she bought a yellow biplane that she nicknamed the Canary. And on October 22, 1922, she flew the Canary at the altitude of 14,000 feet. She was the first woman to do so, setting a record for female pilots. And on May 15, 1923, she became the 16th woman in the U.S. to receive her pilot's license. In 1924, Amelia faced another sinus flare-up she was hospitalized for another operation, which was, again, unsuccessful. Following a series of failed financial investments, she sold the Canary and bought a yellow car that she named the Yellow Peril, in which she made a transcontinental trip from California to Boston, with stops throughout the West and into Canada. When she arrived to Boston, she underwent yet another sinus surgery, which was more successful than previous operations had been. She returned to Columbia after she recovered, but was forced to abandon her studies yet again. Her mother told her that she could no longer finance her school, which meant that her dreams of attending Massachusetts Institute of Technology were foiled. Stuck, she found work as a teacher and then a social worker, though her heart was still in flying. She became a member of the American Aeronautical Society in Boston and was elected vice president, She flew the first official flight out of Denison airport in 1927, an airport that she helped to finance by investing a small amount of money. She acted as a sail rep for an aircraft company, wrote local newspaper columns on flying, and slowly her notoriety as a female pilot spread. She had plans of creating an organization for female flyers. Charles Lindbergh's solo flight across the Atlantic in 1927 inspired Amy Guest to become the first woman to fly or be flown across the Atlantic. She then decided that the trip was too perilous for her to take, but wanted to sponsor the project. Amelia received a phone call at work one day from Captain Hilton H. Rayleigh, who asked her if she'd like to fly across the Atlantic. She was joined by pilot Wilmer Stoltz and co-pilot and mechanic Lewis Gordon on the flight as a passenger. She was asked to keep the flight log. When they landed, she said, quote, Stoltz did all the flying, had to. I was just baggage, like a sack of potatoes. Maybe someday I'll try it alone. This transatlantic flight sparked a national awareness of Amelia. Her physical similarities to Lindbergh, who the press had nicknamed Lucky Lindy, led people to call her Lady Lindy. She was the reigning queen of the air And when she returned to the U.S., her popularity launched her on a lecture tour in 1928 and 29. Meanwhile, George Putnam, who had handled the publicity for her transatlantic flight, began to heavily promote Amelia in a large campaign featuring a book she wrote, a series of lectures, and using her photos in large ad campaigns to promote products. The campaign was successful. It launched Amelia into the public psyche through both her achievements and her advertisements. These advertisements helped finance her flying career. She soon accepted a position as an associate editor at Cosmopolitan Magazine and turned the opportunity into a space to create greater public support for aviation and female pilots. After her transatlantic flight, Amelia wanted to set a record of her own. She took her first long solo flight in August of 1928 and became the first woman to fly solo across North America and back. She began competitive air racing and continued to grow in notoriety. By 1930, she was an official of the National Aeronautic Association, and in 1931, she set a world record reaching 18,415 feet in altitude. It was around this time that Amelia became involved with the 99s, an organization of female pilots providing support to one another and working towards a more inclusive environment for women in aviation. She was elected president of the organization in 1930, Amelia was dedicated to carving out space for women in aviation. She worked diligently as an official of the National Aeronautic Association to advocate for separate records for men and women. And in 1934, when the Bendix Trophy race banned women, she publicly refused to fly actress Mary Pickford to Cleveland to open the race. Though while her public life was growing, her personal life was a bit more unsteady. Amelia was engaged to Samuel Chapman, a chemical engineer while living in Boston, Though by November 1928, she broke off the engagement. It was during this time that Amelia began spending time with her publisher, George Putnam, known as GP. He was divorced in 1929 and pursued Amelia shortly thereafter. But Amelia was evasive. He proposed six times before she finally accepted. They married on February 7, 1931, in George's mother's home in Connecticut. Amelia called the relationship a partnership often. Her ideas of marriage were provocative for the time. She believed in equal responsibility in all respects. And Amelia refused to take his name or be referred to as Mrs. Putnam, but laughed it off when it happened. Though George would learn that he would just as frequently be referred to as Mr. Earhart. The couple didn't have a honeymoon. Amelia was busy with a promotion circuit. They also never had children, though George had two sons from a previous marriage, David and George. Amelia was the stepmother to the boys, with a close relationship to David. But it was clear that domestic life was not meant for Amelia. On May 20, 1932, Amelia took off from Newfoundland. She planned to fly to Paris, to emulate Lindbergh's flight five years earlier. After almost 15 hours of flying, she met strong winds, icy conditions, and mechanical problems. She landed in a pasture in Northern Ireland. When the plane was on the ground, Cecil King and T. Sawyer asked, quote, "'Have you flown far?' and Amelia replied, "'From America.'" Despite not having emulated Lindbergh's trip, she had still become the first woman to fly solo nonstop across the Atlantic. She received the Distinguished Flying Cross from Congress, the Cross of the Knight of the Legion of Honor from the French government, and the Gold Medal of the National Geographic Society from President Hoover. She began to rub elbows with people in high places, Amelia formed a relationship with Eleanor Roosevelt, and the two were both invested in women's causes. Eleanor even obtained a student permit after flying with Amelia, though she didn't pursue learning to fly any further. Amelia continued to set records, flying from Honolulu, Hawaii to Oakland, California on January 11, 1935, becoming the first aviator to do so alone. On November 19th of the same year, she flew from LA to Mexico City, she then attempted a nonstop flight from Mexico City to New York on May 8th. Between 1930 and 1935, she set seven women's speed and distance records. On November 14, 1934, a fire in George's New York home launched the couple to move to the West Coast. George took a new job as head of the editorial board of Paramount Pictures in North Hollywood. And in June, 1935, they purchased a small home in Toluca Lake. But it was early in 1936 that Amelia began planning her biggest journey, a round-the-world flight. While others had done it, her route would be the longest, at 29,000 miles, following an equatorial route. By July 1936, Lockheed Aircraft Company, in my hometown of Burbank, was building her Lockheed Electra 10E to her specifications. She called it her flying laboratory. Amelia carefully chose Captain Harry Manning as her navigator, he was also a skilled radio operator. A second navigator, Fred Noonan, was chosen. The plan was to have Noonan navigate from Hawaii to Howland Island and Manning to continue to Australia before Amelia would proceed alone for the rest of the trip. With such a momentous task, Amelia began on March 17, 1938 with a flight from Oakland to Honolulu. The plane had technical difficulties and needed servicing in Hawaii. The plane ended up in pearl harbor and the flight resumed three days later in takeoff there was an uncontrollable ground loop the forward landing gear collapsed and the plane skidded on its belly part of the runway was damaged the aircraft was severely damaged as well and had to be shipped by sea back to burbank to be repaired by lockheed not wanting to give up amelia traveled with putnam flying from oakland to miami florida where she publicly announced her plan was still to circumnavigate the globe, though this attempt would follow an opposite direction. This time, only Fred Noonan would be a member of the crew. The pair left on June 1st from Miami. They made stops in South America, Africa, India, and Southeast Asia. By June 29, 1937, the pair had flown 22,000 miles. Only 7,000 miles remained, but it would be over the Pacific Ocean. On July 2nd, Amelia and Noonan left the Ley Airfield in Papua New Guinea with the intention of landing at Howland Island, between Hawaii and Australia. Their last known location was Nukumanu Island, about 800 miles into their flight. The plane had radio equipment, though it failed to establish communications on this leg of the flight. The U.S. Coast Guard cutter, Atasca was on station at Howland and was assigned to communicate with Amelia and guide her to the island. Through a series of miscommunications, or mistakes, the final approach to Howland was unsuccessful. Noonan had written about the pair's struggle with radio communication and navigation. During the approach, the Atasca heard strong and clear voice transmissions from Amelia, but she was apparently unable to hear the responses. At 2.45 and 5 a.m. on July 2nd, calls reporting cloudy weather were received. At 6.14, another call was received stating that the plane was within about 200 miles and requesting information for landing. Amelia began to whistle to allow the Itasca to tune into her signal, but the ship couldn't. At 6.45 a.m., Amelia estimated being 100 miles out. The radio log between 7.30 and 7.45 reads, Earhart on Northwest says running out of gas. Only 1.2 hour left. Can't hear us at all. At 7.42, the log states, Amelia reported calling the Atasca. quote, Must be on you, but cannot see you. Gas is running low, then unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at a thousand feet. At 7.58, a transmission said Amelia couldn't hear them and asked them to send voice signals. It was reported as the loudest possible signal. Amelia and Noonan were in the immediate area. But they couldn't send the voice signals they asked for and sent them Morse code instead. Amelia received this, but was unable to determine their direction. At 8.43, in her last known transmission, Amelia sent, quote, We are on the line 157-337. We will repeat this message. We will repeat this on 6210 kilocycles. Wait. A few moments later, she transmitted, We are running on the line north and south, though it was logged as questionable. The message seemed to say that they believed that they had reached the Howland charted position, but was incorrect by five nautical miles. The Atasca generated smoke for a period of time, but it was apparently not seen by Amelia and Noonan. The scattered clouds and low, flat profile of the island likely made it impossible to find under the shadows on the ocean surface. Howland Island was unable to contact the plane. Operators across the Pacific and in the U.S. may have heard signals from the plane but they were unintelligible or weak. There were sporadic signals reported for five days after the disappearance, though none revealed any clues as to their location. One hour after Amelia's last message, the search began. Itasca searched north and west of the island based on the transmissions and assumptions. The U.S. Navy joined the search and spent three days searching around Howland Island. Later efforts focused on the Phoenix Islands south of Howland. Later, Gardner Island, now Nicomororo, which has been uninhabited for 40 years, found signs of recent habitation, but there were not answers from any people. It was assumed that there were no people there. The official search lasted until July 19, 1937. The search by the Navy and Coast Guard was the most costly and intensive in the U.S. history, costing $4 million. Putnam financed a private search at the end of the official search, In late July, George chartered two small boats to search the Phoenix Islands, Christmas Island, Fanning Island, the Gilbert Islands, and Marshall Islands, but no trace of the plane or Amelia was found. Putnam pushed to become the trustee to Amelia's estate to finance further searches and other bills. He requested to have Amelia declared dead in absentia sooner, waiving the seven-year waiting period so that he could manage her finances. So, Amelia was declared legally dead on January 5th, 1939. Of course, her declaration of death did not end speculation as to what happened to her. There are many theories as to what happened to the pair. One such hypothesis is the crash and sink hypothesis. Amelia's messages reported low fuel levels, and without clear direction to Howland Island, many believe that the plane ran out of fuel and the pair crashed at sea. The plane would have sunk, leaving no clues. Another hypothesis, the Gardner Island Hypothesis, assumes that both Amelia and Noonan, having difficulty finding Howland, would have not wasted time, and instead found another island on which to land. Following the 157-337 transmission from the pair, if they continued flying, they would have flown over Baker Island and then the Phoenix Islands, one of which is Gardner Island. The search by Navy planes from the USS Colorado found signs of habitation and the wreck of the USS Norwich City but no signs of Earhart, Noonan, or the plane. They also didn't see any other people and abandoned the search. George Putnam funded a second search of the Phoenix Islands, but nothing was found. A search in 1940 found skull, bones, a bottle, a shoe, and a sextant box. On September 23, 1940, British Colonel Officer Gerald Gallagher reported a skeleton, possibly that of a woman, but explained, quote, bones look more than four years old to me but there seems to be a slight chance that this may be remains of amelia Earhart. he was ordered to send the remains to fiji on april 4 1941 dr d.w hoodless of the central medical school examined the bones he concluded that the bones were that of a person who was about five foot five but the body was definitely that of a male hoodless speculated the person was between 45 and 55 at the time of death and suggested any further examination be done by the Anthropological Department at Sydney University, but the body was misplaced in Fiji, and the remains were never re-examined. Though analysis of the skeletal measurements in 1998 found that the skeleton had been that of a tall, white female of Northern European ancestry, a 2015 review of both analyses determined that the bones belonged to, quote, a robust, middle-aged man so not Amelia Earhart. Though American anthropologist Richard Jantz, one of the authors in the 1998 report, estimated the size of Amelia's skeleton based on photos and reanalyzed the earlier data using modern forensic methods. Based on measurements of 2,700 Americans who died in the mid 20th century, he found that Amelia's measurements were more closely matched to the skeletal remains than 99% of the reference sample. Though the study was hardly scientific using assumptions of size based on photos rather than actual measurements, combined with seven measurements done in 1941. In 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery began their own investigation surrounding the disappearance of Earhart and Noonan. They have sent ten research teams to Gardner Island. They believe the plane to have flown for two hours post-radio communications before landing the plane on an extensive reef near the wreckage of the SS Norwich, off of the uninhabited island. It was on the island that they believed the two died. They believe that they have photographic evidence of the plane in the reef, as well as artifacts such as tools, aluminum panels, and plexiglass. They believe the aluminum and plexiglass to have been part of Amelia's plane, though the rivet patterns found on the aluminum are more likely from a World War II plane. There have been no new pieces of evidence to support this theory. Another hypothesis implies foul play, The Japanese capture hypothesis suggests that Japanese forces captured the two after they navigated, somehow, towards the Japanese South Pacific. In a 1996 book by CBS correspondent Fred Gorner, he claims that they were captured and executed when their plane crashed on the island of Saipan, part of the Northern Mariana Islands archipelago. Saipan is more than 2,700 miles away from Howland. Some have suggested that the pair were captured on the Marshall Islands just 800 miles away, which is slightly more probable. In a 1990 interview with a Saipanese woman, she reveals that she saw both Amelia and Noonan's executions by Japanese soldiers. These reports have not been independently supported by any other evidence. Though yet another take on this hypothesis is not that the two landed somewhere and were captured, but instead were shot down. Henry Kaiser André suggests this theory in his 1993 book, Age of Heroes. Since World War II, on Tinian, an island five miles southwest of Saipan, there have been rumors of a grave of two aviators. However, in a 2004 archaeological dig at the location, no remains were found. The most recent proposal in this hypothesis was by Mike Campbell in his 2012 book, Amelia Earhart, The Truth At Last. Campbell claims Marshall Islanders cited witnessing a crash. He also cites claims from a U.S. Army sergeant who found a suspicious gravesite near a former Japanese prison in Saipan? This hypothesis has been the most accepted by Amelia's family. They believe the Japanese to have been in some way involved. Though many critics of the hypothesis believe that the Marshall Islands were just too far, and had the Japanese found the pair, they would have been motivated to return them and be deemed heroes. Unless, of course, Amelia's flight was not simply about breaking records. There have been suggestions that Amelia's relationship with Eleanor Roosevelt and her husband, FDR, could have led to a bold secondary mission. The legend claims that FDR had cameras installed on her plane, either with or without Amelia's knowledge, that were intended to spy on Japan. This could have been the motivation to capture and harm the pair, though by 1949, the U.S. press and U.S. Army intelligence had concluded that the proposition was groundless. There were no files in Japan that supported any such hypothesis either. Though, with no answer, or body, some have held out hope, suggesting that Amelia survived the flight and moved to New Jersey. Tired of fame, she changed her name to Irene Cragmile Bolum and remarried. It was originally suggested by Joe Class in his book Amelia Earhart Lives, based on research by Major Joseph Gervais. Irene, a banker in New York in the 1940s, denied being Amelia and filed a lawsuit citing damages, requesting $1.5 million. The book was withdrawn from the market and an out-of-court settlement was reached. Of course, it did not stop the fury of curiosity surrounding Irene after the allegation. Her life history was thoroughly documented and the possibility that she was Earhart has been all but eliminated. So what is it about Amelia that continues to fascinate so many? Is it because we simply may never know what happened? or because she was so loved? She was charismatic, independent, radical, and courageous. She's inspired generations of women in aviation and otherwise. She was a member of the National Women's Party, an early supporter of the Equal Rights Amendment, and set many records. I've found her story compelling. Her love of flying motivated her to push through the personal pain of her constant sinus issues, as well as the social stigma of being one of the first women, and in some cases, the first person, to achieve many of her accomplishments in early aviation. Her story is one of dedication and longevity. While Amelia will remain a mystery, perhaps always, she has created a larger-than-life legacy of breaking through barriers and proving that women are just as capable. Thanks for listening. We appreciate each of you and love hearing from you, so hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or email us at talesoftwocitiespodcasts at gmail.com. That's tales of the number two cities podcast at gmail.com. And please rate, review, and subscribe on the listening platform of your choice. We're on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and finally Spotify. A big thank you to my friend Ricardo for the music in this episode. We're a bi weekly podcast, but if you just can't wait for the next episode, head over to our Patreon and pledge for mini episodes and bonus content. Or head over to our shop at TeePublic. That's teepublic.com. Again, we appreciate each of you. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more of our episodes in our March marathon featuring badass ladies until next time.